Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about a bloke whose name you've probably heard before, even if you don't know his full story, Attila the Hun. This bloke was a, a warlord, of course. He waged uh, campaigns of ruthless and bloodthirsty destruction against the Roman Emperor, Empire. He was the uh, he was the leader, of course, of the Huns, who were a nomadic tribal group of horsemen. They migrated uh, inter, into Central Europe from from Central Asia. They set themselves up as a major military power in the, in this region. And absolutely, I mean, they they went after the Romans like you wouldn't believe. They're remembered today as a group of, of, of you know, brutal barbarians, bloodthirsty, savage, all the rest of it. And, and a lot of this reputation actually comes from Attila himself, who certainly, I mean, he did seem to be all those things. He was, he was a skilled fighter. He seemed to have a deep and abiding love of, of just war in general. Uh, he led armies into battle and, and, and raised countless cities, left no survivors. And he became so feared that people would actually flee if they heard that he was coming because, you know, as, as I've just said, he was well known as someone who, who he didn't take. Well, he probably took a few prisoners, but for the most part, he just left piles of dead behind him. So he was uh, he certainly had a very fearsome reputation back then. And, you know, even today, that's sort of how he's known. But uh, while we know a lot about Attila and his life, we don't know all that much about the people that he led. We don't know too much about the Huns, d- just despite their you know, relatively important impact on the history of this period and, and more broadly, history, history more, more generally. The Huns helped to quicken the fall of the, of the Western Roman Empire. They also influenced the development of various cities and also, perhaps most importantly, sparked mass migrations as people fled their marauding. As they moved westward, they sort of, you know, displaced and pushed other people out, which led to the development of, of, of civilizations and, and, and cultures and peoples in other areas in Europe and, and beyond. So they really did, you know, they were a very important, even though they burnt hot and bright, but they, they weren't around for too long. But when they were around the Huns, they did change a, a, lot, of, uh, a lot of different aspects of, of European history. Um, and their leader, you know, for, for one of the most important parts of, of Hunnic history was, of course, Attila. And he, that's the story we're about to hear right now. So let's get to it and have a chat about this bloke, learn a little bit a little bit about him, find out if he was indeed the ruthless, bloodthirsty villain that he's often made out. To, I mean, yeah, he, I don't want to spoil the ending, but he, he kind of was. Anyway, we're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to, honestly, well, we're not actually sure. We don't know don't know hardly anything really about about this fellow's early life he was born around the turn of the fifth century ce so that is the year 400 or so most historians reckon it was around 406 but it could have been earlier some go as early as 395 whatever the case he was born to a noble or perhaps even royal hunnic family it's difficult to say the let's pause quickly to talk about the huns and you know who they were and where they came from and what they were doing at this time based on you know the, the little that we do know as i say nomadic tribal group originated in central asia Towards the end of the 4th century CE, they began to move westward. And this hunting migration had a lot of knock-on effects, as I say. as They were ruthless conquerors. Many people fled when they invaded, invaded further westward. Um, for example, some of the people they displaced, like such as the Goths, went on to do things like sack Rome in 410, which further weakened the already battered uh, Western Roman Empire. Of course, at this point history, at uh, this point in history, the Roman Empire is divided, in, uh, empire is divided into the Western and the Eastern Empires. The West is headquartered in the Italian city of Ravenna, and the East in Constantinople, of course, modern-day Istanbul. 
Anyway, after surging westward into Europe and, you know, either conquering or displacing a bunch of people, the Huns, they quickly took over a huge amount of land in central, um, uh, in central Europe uh, with their fearsome cavalry archers, enabling them to defeat the Goths, the Alans, other Germanic tribes as well um, that all lived to the north of the, uh, of the Roman Emperor and Empire. And, and a long story short, they move out of Central Asia, settle themselves in and crush the tribes that resist them, kill a bunch of people, push out other others who you know aren't going to accept their rule take dominion and within a few decades are ruling this enormous realm just absolutely huge it was right as more or less a tribal confederacy you know we can call it a kingdom if you want it doesn't quite capture it but it was it, it was a it was a confederation of various tribes and cultures all of whom were you know at least in name and you know often indeed as well loyal to the huns because i mean as we've said the huns are pretty bloody scary anyway Around the time that Attila was born, right, the Huns had a very interesting relationship with the Roman Empire. Typically at this point when we're talking about the Roman Empire, we're only focusing on the eastern part. The western part is heading towards collapse. It won't see at the end of the 5th century. So for the next little bit when we're talking about the Romans, we're talking about the eastern Roman Empire, which of course is is or was centred in, uh, in Constantinople. Anyway... Roman Empire, Eastern Roman Empire, got on okay with the Huns, to be honest. Um, they would hire them as mercenaries for the wars that the Romans were fighting. Also, essentially, used to... I mean, the way the Romans prevented the Huns from attacking them was just basically bribing them. They they paid them tribute, right? They they paid them not to invade their lands as well as all the other lands that they'd invaded and stay on their side of the Danube River. Now, the Romans didn't see this as a bribe. They didn't see it as tribute. They decided to uh, instead consider it just a very generous payment for, you know, the Hunnic mercenary services that they'd engaged. Uh, but it was very generous indeed because they paid them over 200 kilos of gold a year. And, you know, again, this was like, oh, well, thanks for coming and fighting in our war- wars, you know, you, you or you Huns, make sure you, you know, you're not going to not going to come and attack us, are you? You stay on your side of the river, we'll stay on ours, and here's 200, pay- here's 200 kilos of gold to, to, um, uh, to keep you happy. So it was a system that worked, well, I mean, I was going to say worked well and, and, until it didn't, which was, you know, we'll get to that in due course. Anyway, that's the background against which Attila is born, right? The Huns swept in, conquered the pants off this area. They're being paid off by the Eastern Roman Empire to stay there on their side of the river. But um, the area that they do control is uh, is vast and uh, their power is, is, is pretty enormous at this stage, the Huns. Anyway, um, Attila... Don't know too much. Uh, don't do, don't know too many more details about this uh, this fellow when he was a young bloke. Don't even know his actual birth name. Attila is, was was not his the name he was given as a, as a as a baby. It was a name that was bestowed upon him as an adult. We think it means something like little father. It might have been an honorific. Anyway, here's some stuff we do know for sure. He uh, he had a brother whose name was Bleeder. Uh, their dad was named Munzuk, and they had an uncle called Rugila who was king. I guess you could say he was the leader of the Huns. Um, but, you know, we don't know Attila's birth name. We don't know his mum's name. We don't know, I mean, all that much else, to be honest with you. More broadly, we don't even know too much about, you know, you know, forget just Attila and his family. We don't know all that much about the Huns as a people. We don't know what kind of language they spoke. It was, you know, Germanic, Iranian or or Turkish or, or we don't know too much about their culture or religion or, or anything, really. They're, they're a bit of a mystery, to be honest. But... Here are some things that we at least suspect about Attila and uh, and his upbringing. As he grew up, he was taught how to ride, taught how to work with horses, how to shoot a bow. Uh, remember, of course, there's you know the fearsome Hunnic cavalry archers. He, that was part of their, at least we know that was part of their uh, their military culture, their military tradition. Um, and he may have also been taught how to speak both Latin and Gothic, so he could communicate with the Huns' neighbouring peoples. 
And we guess all of this because of his achievements in later life, and it fits with the fact that, as I mentioned, he was born as, for lack of a better term, a noble, you know, possibly even a royal, um, probably would have been educated as such. Anyway, grows up with his, his brother Bleeder, and when their uncle Rugila, right, who is the, you know, Hunnic king, for want of a better term, uh, when he dies without any sons in 433, Attila and Bleeder are now in charge of the Huns. Their dad had predeceased their uncle. Rugila did, either didn't have sons or had sons that didn't survive, and so uh, Bleeder and uh, Attila, uh, you know, they're, they're put in charge, essentially. And they work together very closely as rulers. The, the realm wasn't split, really, in, in any practical sense between them. They, they stayed, uh, they worked in, 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 in close collaboration with each other and uh, really brought about an age of, of unparalleled dominance for the Huns, as we'll talk about. Now, you'll remember that Rugila um, had had a relationship with the Roman Empire as both the, the leader of mercenaries hired by the Romans and also the recipient of their tributary bribes, or you know, as the Romans preferred, their, their generous payment for services rendered. Um, but after taking power, right, the two brothers, they sought to uh, clarify this relationship a little further with the Romans. And so in the coming years, they signed a series of treaties with their Roman neighbours. And these treaties made uh, official the payments of tribute, which is very nice. Obviously, that was all properly written out this time. Uh, established fair trade between the two realms and also bound the Romans to re- return to the Huns any Hunnic prisoners that they took. This meant essentially anyone who was running away from the Huns and you know anyone who didn't want to live as, as part of this Hunnic confederacy, if they were captured by the Romans as, as more or less refugees, the Romans would have to return them to the Huns. Um, and in exchange, the brothers agreed not to invade Roman lands or align themselves with the enemies of the Romans or sign treaties with any Roman enemies or anything else like that. So everyone's happy here. Very good, right? Now, the Romans, this is a big thing for them because they've now got a, you know an official written treaties that say that the Huns aren't going to invade them on, over the Danube. And so relieved that they didn't have to worry about this, you know, a, a potential Hunnic invasion, the Romans were able to move all their troops away from the northern border and send them off to various Mediterranean provinces like Sicily and Carthage, which were under attack from other enemies like the Vandals. Um, Attila and Bleda, for their part, they decided instead, because, you know, obviously these blokes, they've got to go and crack some skulls. They've got, they, 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 they just loved war that much. They had to go and fight someone. They headed east and had a go at invading the Sassanid Empire. Uh, but this proved to be a bad move because despite the military might of the Huns, the Sassanids, essentially the, the Neo-Persian Empire, they defeated them very handily and sent them packing. It was a, it was a rare instance of the Huns having a, a, more or less a, a total military defeat here at the hands of the Sassanids. The Huns just bloody love fighting. I mean, what can I say? The brothers loved it more than most too. They were respected and popular amongst the troops that they led. They were skilled horsemen and even better fighters. They just loved killing blokes and burning villages down. But uh, they couldn't get it done out east against the Sassanids, Bagabam, and so they headed back to Central Europe, back to modern-day Hungary more or less, where their realm was centred. And they realise, hang on, what's this? Oh, the Roman border, it's just... it's basically been left undefended by the Eastern Roman Empire. This is, I mean, this is bloody brilliant. This is fantastic. We should have signed a treaty ages ago. This is what was going to happen if we knew they were going to pull all their troops away and leave it open for us like this. But, of course, there is still that pesky treaty. They had to do all those stupid agreements they'd signed. They couldn't just go and invade without breaking them. I mean, what are they going to do? They've got to fight someone, and the Roman border is looking very, very juicy at this point. So... They decide, right, they, they decide to cook up an excuse to cross the Danube and invade. They tried to find a way, right, that they were going to, uh, you know, break this treaty or, or, or make it look like perhaps the Romans had broken this treaty 
in order to uh, to to invade without. I mean, I don't know why they cared about the treaty all that much, really, but they did go to this length at least, as you'll hear about, um, uh, so as to have a a just cause for the war that they wanted to fight against the Romans. So what they did, this is what they did. they went off the Romans. They said, "Listen here." We reckon that you blokes have not been living up to your half of the bargain. We think that there have been Hunnic prisoners crossing into Rome, into the Eastern Roman Empire, and you haven't sent them back, right? And on top of that, right? And on top of that, there's been some bloody Roman bishop. He's snuck into the Hunnic realm, and of all things, he's done a bit of grave robbing, if you'll believe it. He's been stealing treasures, buried with the dead, fleeing back to Roman lands, and we're not having it. Now, a bit ridiculous, you might think, that they've sort of cooked up this story here, but it was enough for the brothers to kick off, you know, at least a, a preliminary invasion, and their Danube campaign began. They crossed the river, they began to attack forts and towns until the Romans came to answer these charges that had been brought against them. The, the Hunnic brothers, they're going, well, you know, you've broken the treaty, so all bets are off, we're going to invade. And then the Romans, they turn up, they sent this bloke named Flavius Aspar to try to sort it all out. He comes up, he goes, oh, well, boys, what's going on, mate? What's going on? You've been attacking towns and merchants and forts and all this sort of stuff. What's going on? What's the matter? And the brothers say, well, you listen here, mate. I, I tell you what, we crave battle and, and violence and carnage. You know that. And you Romans, you've been playing silly buggers with us. We signed this treaty. You've gone and broken it. And Aspar goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on one second, mate. We've done no such bloody thing. What's the problem here? What, have, what are we supposed to have done? Attila goes, well, you know, you blokes, you've got a stack of honey prisoners. You know, they've escaped the realm. Rebels, they could be for all we know. We want them back before they stir up any discontent outside of our control here. And Aspar goes, mate. I don't know anything about that. There's no prisoners that we're withholding from you. If there's any refugees or anything, we've we've sent them all straight back to you, just like we'd agreed. Don't even worry about it. I don't know what to tell you, mate. Sorry about this. And uh, and the brothers go, no, no, no. Well, listen, even if that's the case, that's not all, because there's this bastard priest. He's been sneaking about, digging up graves, nicking treasures out of them. We're not happy about that at all. Just look at these. Look, here, I'll bring you over. Look at these graves. He shows them these, these graves that have been recently disturbed. And he says, look at this, mate. What's going on here? And Aspar goes, well, yeah, I mean, I can see them graves there, but, uh, I mean, listen, you blokes, I mean, anyone could have done that, obviously. Might, you know, might not have been this Roman bishop you're talking about, hey? And Attila and Blader, they go, mate, listen, we know it was the bishop what done it. You better hand him over to us, you know, as well as all the rest of the refugees. Quick, bloody smart, or there's going to be trouble. And Aspar goes, mate, honestly, I don't know what to tell you. I really can't help you out. There's no proof that the bishop's done anything wrong. I don't know what you're talking about with these prisoners. I don't know how we can move forward here. So these negotiations, they fall through. Aspar, he refused to turn over the bishop given the lack of evidence. Uh, he insisted he didn't know anything about any, you know, Hunnic refugees that the Romans hadn't handed back over. And uh, Attila and Bleda, once Aspar had left to go and report the results of this back to Constantinople, they decided to take Aspar's refusal to give in to their demands as the basis for their rightful claim that the treaty had, that they'd signed had been broken by the Romans and therefore all bets were off. And all, all bets were off. The Huns, therefore, they did what they do best. They mounted up, they got ready for war and they invaded the Roman lands properly, burning and sacking cities, fighting battles and, count, and killing countless people here. Now, obviously... Attila and Bleda, they just wanted an excuse, right? Like, this is obvious. This is very clear. They just wanted an excuse for a bit of wanton violence. They loved fighting, very good at it, as I said. So the whole business about the treaty being broken was, again, just a bit of a cover story to fight while the Romans were ill-prepared to defend themselves because their armies had been taken off elsewhere. But here's the really interesting thing, right? You ready for this one? Attila and Bleda were actually right about the treaty being broken all along. I don't know. I mean, it seems it's largely irrelevant because they just wanted to fight whether it had or hadn't been broken at all. But it just so happens that the charges they laid against the Romans, uh, uh, you know, saying that they'd broken the treaty, were actually true. 
the Romans were harbouring Hunnic refugees after all. And even better, you know that Roman bishop who was accused of grave robbing? He did rob the graves that the brothers accused him of robbing and he did steal these treasures and take them back to Roman land. So whether Aspar knew this or not is unclear. He may have been lying or he may have just been actually you know, ignorant of, of the truth of the matter. But whatever the situation, Attila and Bleeder... Their belligerent accusations that were just, you know, designed to start this war, they were actually, they actually ended up being valid. Not that, obviously, not that it mattered at all to them because, I mean, the Hunnic mobilization against the Romans, it was swift and terrible and probably would have happened anyway. Uh, and it left a fiery swath of destruction in its wake. They sacked and razed city after city. Interestingly, one of these cities was betrayed to the Huns by the bishop who had nicked all that stuff out of the graves. It seemed, he seemed to want to get back in Attila and Bleeder's good books after all the grave robbing, and so he actually helped them take over this city. Um, but more broadly, the Huns completely caught the Romans with their pants down. And there's a very good reason for this. Not only had the Romans withdrawn all their troops from this frontier and moved them to the south in the Mediterranean, the second reason, and perhaps the most important one here, is Aspar managed to stuff it all up even more once he got back to, uh, to Constantinople. After these failed negotiations with the Huns, Aspar went back to Emperor Theodosius II and said, listen here, mate, the Huns, just posturing, kicking up a stink for no reason. They're not going to attack. Don't worry about it, mate. They're just, they're just trying to poke the hornet's nest a little bit. Now, old mate Theodosius, he goes, Aspar, you've done a great job. Thank you very much. Thanks for your wise counsel. I'll take that on board and I'll ignore every single other person who says anything otherwise. And as a result of this, you know, he's got all these other people saying, well, no, the Huns are invading. They're going to attack. They're, they are currently attacking. Our cities are on fire. Theodos is going, mate, mate, shh, shh, I'm not interested in that. Don't worry about that. Listen, Aspar said it was going to be fine. It's going to be fine. He ignores them all. And as a result of this, right, he was very bloody late indeed in responding to the depredations of the Huns as they, you know, tore through the northern provinces of the Eastern Roman Empire. Now, I know I've already talked about this. But it does bear repeating. Attila, Bleeder, and the Huns, they ripped these lands to shreds. They burned and pillaged and killed and, and just had a great time doing it. They seemed to just enjoy war. They liked the loot and the, the, the plunder and whatever else, but they didn't seem to care as much about that or you know conquest or any of the other things that people usually go to war for. They just liked to fight. They just loved to fight and kill. Between 441 and 445, the Huns carried out this essentially unresisted campaign of destruction across modern-day Hungary, Greece, Italy, the Balkans, coming very close to the capital of Constantinople itself. They left cities burnt and their populations dead, and even when Theodosius finally responded, it just wasn't enough. The Huns defeated the Roman armies at every turn, butchering them wholesale. This was the life that Attila and Bleeder and all the rest of them, they loved to live, right? They weren't interested in, in statecraft and diplomacy and, and all the rest of it. They, they just loved to fight. And it's one of the reasons that Attila had such a fearsome reputation in history. He loved war. He was bloody good at it. And, and you know, these stories of the Huns and their brutal savagery spread far and wide. But one of the reasons that everyone heard about how, you know, terrible and, uh, and fearsome Attila was, was because he himself actively encouraged the spread of these stories. Attila liked it when people talked about his bloodthirsty ruthlessness. It meant that people were afraid of him, particularly opposing armies who were much easier to defeat if they were, you know, fighting and running scared. So perhaps Attila wasn't as bad as we think. Maybe if, you know, he's spreading the... No, I mean, he, he probably was, to be honest, but he, he did absolutely nothing to improve his PR, I'll tell you that. There are uh, some other sort of hidden depths of this bloke, according to chroniclers, you know, from around this period. They talked about how he was 
very generous in victory to those who surrendered and how he was, you know, a, a, a thoughtful and a, um, and, you know, a reasonably wise and intelligent bloke. But he just wasn't one to give in for peaceful solutions or diplomacy when he could just, you know, jump on his horse, swing his sword about and get the job that done that way. So I don't want to paint the picture that he was just this, you know, completely savage and, and you know, uncontrollable barbarian. This was very much the choice of the way that he decided to live his life. He wanted to live a life of violence. That was the one that he he, he actively chose rather than, you know, being... The, he was just the... He, he was effectively the perfect ideal of the warrior king. You know, he didn't have time, as I say, for diplomacy, nice words, anything else like that. He just wanted to get into the action and, and, and fight wars on behalf of his people. And, and that's exactly what he did for years and years. But after these years have passed, after years of, you know, having their asses handed to them by the Huns, the Romans eventually just gave up. They realized they couldn't fight the Huns. They sued for peace. And Theodosius now had to pay off the Huns in order to get them to stop attacking again. Now, remember the tributes that the, the Romans were paying beforehand, you know, just over well, a little bit over uh, 200 kilograms of gold every year? Attila and, uh, and Bleeder, right, they decide to triple this tribute. It goes up to almost 700 kilograms of gold per year. They ransomed any Roman prisoners that they'd taken at an absolute extreme extortionate rate and they just they absolutely absolutely fleeced the romans here but what could they do the huns had them by the short and curlies they'd already devastated much of their empire killing thousands and thousands costing theodosius a fortune burning down all these cities and so he had no choice he had to pay this bribe and the huns finally withdrew after years and years of fighting happy enough to head home uh, you know to the to the great hungarian plain where their uh, where their sort of uh, realm was centered with their pockets jingling and, and just chill out for a while and it's here in 445 that Bleeder uh, departs our story. We're not 100% sure what actually happened to him. He just kind of disappeared from history. Some accounts say that he died in 445, um, perhaps killed by his brother even. It's never never been confirmed. But whatever happened to Bleeder, his absence meant that Attila took the Hunnic throne for himself and began to rule alone. Now, you know, this bloke, I mean, he's Attila the Hun. Obviously, he's not just going to rest on his laurels and, and chill out and have a good time. He had a couple of scraps here and there, just you know, just to keep the skill sharp, make sure the blood and the sword doesn't dry off. Um, and he had a crack at the Eastern Roman Empire here and there a couple of times in the coming years. But the next five years, more or less, were a time of relative peace for Attila and the Huns. There wasn't a full-on campaign. There wasn't a full-on invasion being kicked off. Of course, he, as I say, he was scrapping here and there. But um, for the most part, right, he was a bit more chilled out than he had than he had been um, for for years previous. But funnily enough, right, funnily enough, the Romans in Constantinople who used this opportunity to bolster their defences and built some of the you know the massive walls that Constantinople was fa- so famous for. Funnily enough, they avoided the attention of Attila the Hun uh, with what came next because after uh, a couple of years, right, in the year four fifty. Attila's attention was turned elsewhere. He turned his back on the Eastern Roman Empire and instead looked to the West, to the Western Roman Empire with its capital in Ravenna. And this is because of what happened, as I say, in the year 450, he got a message from a a woman named Honoria. It's spelled like honor with an I-A at the end. Honoria? Honoria? I don't know. Anyway, Honoria, she was the sister of the Western Roman Emperor, Valentinian III. And she was being forced into an arranged marriage with a Roman senator, and she was not too hot on this plan. She didn't want to marry this bloke. So 
she decided, right, to get into of all things that you could you could do to try to get out of this arranged marriage, she decided to get in touch with Attila the Hun and ask him for help. She sent this message along with her engagement ring. She sent them off to Attila and said, mate, please come and help me, right? And being the, you know, crafty and opportunistic fellow that he was, Attila decided to interpret this message from Honoria as a marriage proposal, which he, of course, accepted. Now, Honoria almost certainly didn't mean it as a marriage proposal, but that didn't matter to Attila. He decided that he was going to marry, marry Honoria and would accept as a dowry half the Western Roman Empire. Now, Valentinian, he hears about this. He hears about what his sister's done. He hears about what Attila's done. And, and he says, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's just back it up a little bit here, mate. No, 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 Attila, it wasn't a proposal. Just my sister playing silly buggers. Don't worry about it. Just trying to get out of that marriage. Doesn't concern you. Doesn't involve you. But it's too late because Attila goes, no, no, no. She sent me a ring. She sent me the bloody, uh, you know what Beyonce says? If you like it, then you should have put a ring on it. That's what she's tried to do. And now I'm going to try to put a ring on half the Western Roman Empire as well as your sister, mate, because it's too late. The cat's out the back. Well, Valentinian, obviously not going to just roll over and hand over half his realm and his sister as well to this bloke. So you'll never guess what Attila decided to do in order to fulfill what he was still very, very firmly decided was a marriage proposal. You'll never guess his approach to, to solving this particular problem. That's right. He once again raised his armies and mobilized for war. He marched this time against the Western Roman Empire with a staggeringly huge army. The lowest estimates of the number of troops that Attila commanded at this point when he set off to war against uh, against the Western Roman Empire in 451 was 200,000. 200,000. An absolutely ridiculous number and that's at the lower end. Some estimates go as high as a million troops under the command of the Huns here. This gargantuan army, it invaded the Western Roman Empire, moving into modern-day France and Belgium, and once again putting cities and people to the fire and the sword. The Hunnic army, it wasn't disciplined, it wasn't highly trained, they were chaotic and wild fighters, they sped about on horseback with their bows, raining arrows down on the enemy, and then closed to engage in, 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 in messy hand-to-hand combat without any kind of order. But it worked. Right? And again, because of the terrible tales that preceded Attila and his Huns, people fled at their arrival. They sought to escape the destruction that the Huns brought with them, and city after city fell. Once again, Attila leaving nothing but blackened ashes and the ashes and the bones of those that he'd killed in his wake, as those who were too slow to flee, obviously for the most part, just lost their lives at the hands of these uh, of, of, of these marauding barbarians here. Now the Romans they had to respond. Obviously their 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 realm was burning. The Western Romans now we're talking about they, they had to do something, and so they sent an allied force of Romans and Visigoths to meet the Huns in battle. Now the result was a battle you may have heard of. It was a, a very famous battle called the Battle of the Catalonian Fields. It was one of the very last battles fought by the Western Roman Empire before its collapse. But by the time the battle came, Attila had already plundered half of Gaul. He was looking absolutely unstoppable, as he, you know, just as he'd been when fighting alongside his brother years ago. But at this battle, at last, finally, the Battle of the Catalonian Fields, he met his match. Historians still argue about the result of this battle. Many do give it to the Romans and the Visigoths, saying that they won. But if that's the case, they still suffered incredibly heavy losses in victory. Others say that it was uh, the result was a little more indecisive, a little inconclusive, and it's difficult to say what the you know actual impact of the battle was, uh, with neither side having won or lost. But one thing is certain, one thing is certain: the Battle of the Catalonian Fields at least stopped 
It, it stopped Attila's incursions into Gaul. It, it, it meant that he, he packed up and had to turn, and, and, and turn around. After the battle, Attila was able to safely withdraw the, what remained of his army and all the loot that they had captured, hence the idea that it wasn't a total Roman Visigothic victory because the Huns got away pretty cleanly once the fighting had stopped, even though they, they themselves lost thousands of, of, of troops as well. But the Romans, they were happy enough to claim victory just purely based on the fact that they'd stopped the Hunnic invasion of Gaul. They hoped that Attila would return home and find someone else to fight or perhaps, you know, just chill out a bit and stop fighting altogether. Attila, mate, you've been doing it your entire life. Maybe it's time to take a break. But of course, our mate Attila, he's not finished. Of course he's not finished, mate. And after going home and licking his wounds, he was back at it again in 452, this time invading the northern end of the Italian peninsula. So he's ravaged his way through Gaul, gone back home, and now he's taking a different approach, heading straight to the the Western Roman heartland here. Now... He swept through northern Italy. Again, by the way, sorry, this is all to claim, you know, the the proposal that he thinks that Honorius made to him. This is all based on that. He, he It didn't take much for him to go to war. The flimsiest sort of excuse would get him on horseback off and, you know, and, and killing blokes. And here it was to claim his uh, his Roman bride. Um, but yes, he swept into northern uh, nor- the northern end of the Italian peninsula. Same old story, raising and burning, looting and pillaging, the fire and the sword. Classic Attila the Hun here. This, he, he's really at his best. This is, this, is, this is the stuff that you've, not, you know, you, you know, you've come to know and love from this bloke. And as he burned his way through northern Italy, his invasion had a very interesting effect, right? Because I want, I want to tell you about one of the direct knock-on uh, consequences of this Hunnic invasion. One that the legacy of the one the results of which are still a big part of today's world a very much bigger part than you might have thought right as the huns uh blasted their way through northern italy right particularly in the northeast there were many people obviously who fled uh, at, at the oncoming huns but they always they didn't always flee necessarily away from the huns they weren't running in front of the the rolling boulder some of them very cleverly step to the side of it, right? They're a bit more genre savvy than the idiots we see in the, you know, in, in, in the in the movies in Prometheus when they're running in front of the big rolling thing, just walk to the side and let it bypass you. And that's exactly what a group of people did in northeastern Italy. What they did was this. There were a bunch of small islands off the coast in these sort of lagoons, right, off the coast of Italy. And these people moved out into the lagoons to avoid the hunting attacks settled themselves on these islands, established small communities there, and eventually began to link the islands with with walkways and structures and whatever else, and ended up settling there permanently, safe from the marauding Huns on the other side of this lagoon. Obviously, you've got a bunch of cavalry or whatever else. They're not going to be able to safely cross over, and why would you anyway? It's just a bunch of blokes on a marshy, swampy islands here. I mean, it's not worth it at all. Continue your, your battle further south down the peninsula. And today... There are still people living on those islands, not, not that they look like islands anymore, in the lagoons in northeastern Italy. And the town, the city that emerged from this, you know, displacement of people across to these lagoons, the city that emerged is today known as Venice. Venice was first established as a settlement by people fleeing Attila and his Huns. And of course, over the centuries, Venice grew to become one of the most important economic powers in Europe, right, in, in, in the fullness of time, before now being a, obviously a major tourist destination and one of the most iconic cities on earth. It's, it's an incredible place to visit, and, and the reason it exists was because Attila the Hun swept through northern Italy, 
and forced all these people to flee. They ran at, at his at his coming and they, you know, sailed out to these islands, set up shop there and, and never looked back. Anyway, back to Attila here. His usual, he's up to his usual nonsense. He's burning down cities, killing anyone and everything he's passed. All, path, all, the, all the classic stuff from him, soldier or civilian. No one escaped his wrath, all the same. And to make things worse for the Romans, they didn't have an army to face him. The Visigoths were miles away. The remaining Roman armies had been eviscerated at the Battle of Catalonian Fields, win, lose, or draw. And it seemed that Attila was to be absolutely unstoppable in his invasion of Italy here. However, as Attila and his Huns continued south, they, they finally reached the River Po. And it was there that they stopped. And this, was, this happened for a couple of reasons. First of all, right, there had been widespread famine across Italy uh, this year. And Attila's army hadn't been able to supply itself as it marched and conquered. They hadn't been able to, you know, commandeer and steal foodstuffs off the people that they conquered. They were running out of food. So that's a, that's a, a bad start. Further to this point, Attila knew that if he marched all the way to Rome and sacked it again for the second time in, you know, just a couple of decades, it wouldn't solve the supply problem. It would only make it worse, in fact, because they'd now they'd be even further along down into the peninsula, even further along from their own supply lines. And... On top of this, there was a level of superstition about the last time that Rome had been sacked. I don't want to spoil the ending of the 410 sack of Rome, but after Alaric, the Visigoth, um, sacked Rome in the year 410, he died not, not long afterwards, and there was said to have been something of a curse on him after he, uh, you know, after he died uh, shortly after sacking the city. And this played on uh, Attila's mind. He didn't want to go the same way. On top of this, Valentinian sent peace envoys to Attila, begging him to turn around and return home and, you know, reminding him of the pointlessness and potentially even the superstitious curse of the, that may lay on him if, if he were to sack Rome, as, as Alaric had done all those years ago. And on top of this, right, there are a couple more reasons that he stopped here at the River Po. Another one was that the Eastern Roman Empire had now returned the favour to the Huns, right, and was attacking their weakened borders, while the bulk of the army was campaigning in Italy, just as Attila and Bleda had done a decade previously. You'll remember after they signed that uh, that agreement, the Eastern Roman Empire withdrew their forces from the border with um, with the Huns, and the Huns took advantage of this by, you know, staging an invasion. And that's exactly what the Eastern Roman Empire was doing. Now, under a new emperor, they were starting to harass and, and harry the borders that they shared with the Huns there. But finally. Really, the probably the biggest reason there was, on top of the starvation and uh, and all the other reasons there, Attila's army was uh, was ravaged by disease. They were a long way from home. There was starvation. There was illness. There was disease. There was the threat of a curse, and also the homelands were under attack from the East, uh, the Eastern Roman Empire. And so, at last, Attila finally recognised the need. Right for, for only the second time in his career. He was forced to give up a campaign once and for all. Only the Sassanids had truly beaten him previously, and now it was circumstance rather than the Romans themselves that defeated him, that had defeated his efforts this time around. Attila packed up his troops. He returned home. He gave up on the invasion of Italy. He was instead determined to deal with the East Romans. As I said, they had a new emperor, Marcion, who had not only been harassing the Hunnic borders, but also refused to pay the yearly tribute of gold. And Attila wasn't going to take this lying down, was he? No, no, of course not. He was going to go home. He's going to get that sorted out. An Aurea will keep, maybe. We'll come back to her. Or if not, we'll find another reason to fight. Don't worry about it. In the meantime, we're going to go back and deal with this problem back at home. But he never actually managed to do it. He never managed to deal with this problem. There's a very, very good reason for the fact that he didn't, you know, that he, he wasn't able to 
prevent the Eastern Roman Empire from continuing to harass the Hunnic border and, and, and he wasn't able to you know, reinforce the tribute that they were supposed to pay by treaty. There's a reason he wasn't able to do this, and that's because he just died. I mean, yeah. Sorry about that. Bit of a bit of an abrupt ending there. Sorry to to end the uh, the the story at such short short notice. But that's what happened. He headed back to the the realm of the Huns. Uh, he got married. He married a woman named uh, Ildico. Uh, and during the the wedding or the marriage uh, celebration feast, whatever else, he got pissed as a newt, as you do and died of either internal bleeding after rupturing his esophagus or getting a huge nosebleed and choking to death on the blood. What a way to go. Attila the Hun, one of the fiercest and most fearsome fighters in history, died after getting pissed at his own wedding. Not what you might have expected. And in truth, the rise of the Huns died with Attila. The realm was split between his three sons, and they quickly squandered their power through foolish infighting they came into conflict with each other trying to seize the lion's share of the realm that their father had left them and enemies both internal and external slowly but surely unpicked the uh, the power of the of the huns there and you know within a few decades after the death of attila the the this this tribal confederacy had completely collapsed and the huns weren't really a force to be reckoned with whatsoever they they were not a worrisome threat to anyone romans or anyone else they'd lost control over much of the land that attila had previously ruled and as I said when I opened the show, they burned hot and bright, the Huns, but their time in the spotlight lasted only a century or so as a major military power. But they did have a, a lasting impact on history. They hastened the fall of the Western Roman Empire. They challenged and threatened the Eastern Roman Empire. They caused mass migration of all sorts of people across Europe as they raised and pillaged and burnt their names into history as these ruthless, cruel, and bloodthirsty barbarians. But the truth of the matter is this. We still hardly know anything about them. And what we do know is largely written by their enemies. We don't know much about their culture or their technological capabilities, about their language or religion or anything, really. And most of the famous stories we have about them were, as I say, not only written by their enemies, but also encouraged by Attila himself, so as to make himself seem, make him seem like even more of a fearsome warrior than he actually was. So when we think of the Huns and Attila, when we think of these, these ruthless and savage and, and bloodthirsty barbarians, remember that we are looking at that through a very long lens of history and a lens that has been coloured by various interests that have certain, you know, sort of, and it, it's often the case that, you know, as we say, history is written by the victors. History is, historians have a way of injecting their own agenda uh, into the stories that they tell, and sometimes that agenda manifests itself in, you know, a rather more negative portrayal of a of a person or a people or a culture or whatever civilization than it would be otherwise. But what's really interesting about the Huns is that they themselves sought to make the perception of their their civilization, their culture, worse than it was because Attila wanted people to be scared of him. The most famous and lasting legacy that we have of the Hunnic people and their civilization comes from this period in their history when they were led by the most famous Hun of them all, Attila. And his lifelong campaign for war and conflict lives large in history and in our imagination even today. And I suppose when you think about it, right, for someone who was so bloodthirsty his entire life, it's altogether appropriate that he died by choking on his own blood.
But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Attila the Hun. And it's uh, I always enjoy getting stuck into stories a bit more deeply about people that we, we have certainly heard of. And we you know, you've heard the name Attila the Hun. You know that he was a bloodthirsty barbarian. But what did he actually do? Well, now you know. And it's always interesting to to find out a little bit more about people like this. So I do hope you enjoyed this uh, this podcast. As ever, all the normal boring housekeeping stuff coming your way, halfhousehistory.net, old episodes there, contact form if you want to get in touch with an episode idea or any feedback. Jump onto anchor.fm slash halfhousehistory if you want to uh, gain access to the uh, the the feed of the show so you can subscribe to it and whatever, whatever your uh, podcast platform is. And uh, finally, of course, uh, the big thank you for uh, to all the Patreon supporters, people on patreon.com slash halfhousehistory supporting the, the show financially. Thank you so much to all of them. They get access to all sorts of uh, extra bonus benefits like behind the scenes stuff and show notes and uncut episodes, whatever else. So if you want to support the show, that's the place to do it. Um, and of course... Another big thank you, two big thank yous this week um, to all the people who are out there chatting to people about half our history, people who are uh, you know, spreading the good word of this podcast, getting those numbers up. I appreciate people who are, who are telling, uh, telling people about, uh, about this dumb idiot podcast and you know, maybe encouraging them to listen to it. Um, thank you so much for, for getting those numbers up. Appreciate it, mate. Good on you. Anyway, that's that for this week of, uh, of Half Our History. Looking forward to having your company again next week with more nonsense. Uh, until then. Of course, leaving you with a question posed on Reddit here. This one, I mean, what else would it be about? It's all about Attila the Hun here. Always be Texton asks, since they always call him Attila the Hun, where can I learn more about all of the other Attilas? Attila.